All right, Exodus 21. Exodus 21, we're going to look at verses 1 through 27 this morning. You open your Bible there or navigate on your electronic device. And when you get there, you're going to see that the topic is God limited the length of time an Israelite could serve as a slave to six years. The title of our message, One Half of Twelve Years a Slave. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, thank you so much for allowing us uh, what is quite honestly a privilege, Lord, to, to be here. We're comfortable. We have the Word of God in front of us. Uh, Lord, we're so much better off than uh, most of the rest of the world. We're grateful. We also want to take advantage of that, Lord, to uh, share the gospel of Jesus Christ to the rest of the world. And so today I pray that you would advance that desire in us, fill us with your spirit as we seek to understand these words that uh, Moses penned so many years ago. Make them come alive in our hearing, Lord, and make, uh, help us to see Jesus in them. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, amen. If you have a job that seems menial or sounds boring to people, perhaps you should consider giving it a more creative title. You've all heard the title domestic engineer applied to a housewife or a house husband. Likewise, you're not a garbage man, you're a sanitation engineer. See if you can spot the jobs behind these actual titles. Director of First Impressions. We used to call those people receptionists. Vision clearance engineer. That's a window washer. Media distribution agent. Newspaper boy or girl. That's correct. And one of my favorites, reprographics expert. That's someone who makes copies. Reprographics. There's a word in the Bible with so much negative connotation that the translators try to avoid using it as much as possible. They use acceptable variants that to our ears make it sound less severe. According to one commentator, the Hebrew word we're talking about appears 800 times as a noun and nearly 300 times as a verb. It is the Hebrew word for slave. It appears 1,100 times in the Old Testament, but if you do a search for it in the New King James Version, you'll find that it's translated slave only about 15 of those times. Instead of slave, the translators opt for servant or bondservant. It's done for good reason. They want to differentiate biblical slavery from what we normally associate with slavery. We can't help but think of the abominable American institution of slavery, the bondage and oppression experienced by Africans in the 18th and 19th centuries on our soil. Slavery in the Bible was nothing like what we are familiar with, nothing at all. And so we have a tough tough task ahead of us in chapter 21 of Exodus. We have to think of slavery in this biblical sense. It wasn't a horrifying institution by which men owned other men and women as their property, but it wasn't exactly Club Med either. Then just as we finish discussing slavery, Moses brings up capital punishment. I feel like it's Fox News. One way to help keep ourselves focused on what the Bible teaches versus the biases we bring is to draw out the fact that underlying everything in these verses is the sanctity of human life. Slaves and free men alike were understood to be made in the image of God. All life was to be respected. Disrespect for it brought the severest of punishment. I'll organize my comments on these verses around two points. Number one, 
You see the sanctity of human life in the maintaining of slaves. And number two, you see the sanctity of human life in the mandating of capital punishment. Let's take a look at slaves first in verses 1 through 11. According to the American Psychiatric Association, by age 18, a U.S. youth will have seen 16,000 simulated murders and 200,000 acts of violence. Those numbers double if they watch one episode of The Walking Dead. Just kidding about that one. I don't want to be drawn into the debate about whether or not media violence is to blame for what is happening among our youth. Without saying where it leads a viewer, a case can be made for the devaluing of human life in the media. Then there's the absolute horror of abortion on demand. Between 1970 and 2014, the CDC reports nearly 44.5 million legal induced abortions in the United States. As of March 2018, human euthanasia is legal in the Netherlands, Belgium, Colombia, Luxembourg, Canada, and India. Assisted suicide is legal in Switzerland, Germany, South Korea, Japan, and in the U.S. states of Washington, Oregon, Colorado, Hawaii, Vermont, Montana, in D.C., and in California. An assisted dying scheme in the Australian state of Victoria comes into effect mid-2019. Sanctity of human life seems to be at an all-time low. What exactly do we mean by the sanctity of life? Well, it can have more than one definition, obviously, but here's a good one. The phrase sanctity of life reflects the belief that because people are made in God's image, human life has an inherently sacred attribute that should be protected and respected at all times. God gives directions on how the Hebrews were to maintain slaves. Those directions are built upon the bedrock of the sanctity of all human life. We might summarize them by saying you can't treat a slave as a slave. God demanded slaves be treated as full, 100% human beings with respect. Israel had no prisons. They had no penal system. Instead, they had a type of slavery that promoted restoration and restitution. So let's get into it in verse 1. Now, these are the judgments which you shall set before them. God had previously spoken aloud to Israel the Ten Commandments. The judgments given in the next few chapters are guidelines given to judges in order that they might apply the Ten Commandments to particular cases that will rise among the Israelites. These first verses, 1 through 11, are the Ten Commandments applied to slaves. Now, before we look at them, let's talk about how you could become a slave. According to one source, there were four basic ways a Hebrew might become a slave to another Hebrew. In extreme poverty, they might sell their liberty. A distressed father might sell his children into servitude. In the case of bankruptcy, a man might become servant to his creditors. And if a thief had nothing with which to pay proper restitution, he served as a slave. Now, the instructions that follow are judgments that apply the Ten Commandments to slavery. There certainly were other cases not listed in the Bible that required the judges to apply precedent. In fact, as we read some of these, you think, why these and not others? And they don't seem to make much sense, but uh, they are just setting precedent. They don't claim to cover every possible situation. It's not comprehensive of all cases. It is typical of all cases. And so verse 2, if you buy a Hebrew servant, he shall serve six years. And in the seventh year, he shall go out free and pay nothing. Wow. Right away, you understand that Hebrew slavery was entirely different 
than anything we are familiar with. The maximum tenure of a slave was six years, and then freedom, and more than freedom. According to Deuteronomy chapter 15, and I'll read it to you from verses 13 and 14, when you send him away free, you shall not let him go away empty-handed. You shall supply him liberally from your flock, from your threshing floor, from your wine press, from what the Lord has blessed you with, you shall give to him. And so a slave was set free after six years, and they were bankrolled so that they could have a fresh start. Commentators can't agree on whether in the seventh means in the sabbatical year or at the end of any six-year period. In biblical times, the Hebrews were supposed to let their land rest every seventh year. It was a sabbatic year. It was for failing to do this for 490 years that the Jews were required to remain captive in Babylon 70 years during the time of Daniel. They had uh, refused to follow God's ordinance, and so God required those years back from them. I'm thinking slavery lasted a maximum of six years regardless of the sabbatical year. Otherwise, people would work the system. They would know that the sabbatical year is coming up, and they would commit their crime a month ahead of time, and then they'd have to be set free. And so uh, it seems like whatever happened, you had a six-year term. After six consecutive years, a slave was emancipated without having to be bought or to buy himself or herself out of slavery. He was gifted then to help reestablish him. And so verse 3, if he comes in by himself, he shall go out by himself. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. This tells us that even though a slave... The man was able to maintain a home life with his wife and children. There was respect for marriage and for family. Verse 4, if his master has given him a wife and she has borne him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters, and he shall go out by himself. So you're serving your six years, and a woman in the household catches your eye. You fall in love, you get married, you have some kids. At the end of your six years, your wife and kids belong to the master of the house. Unfair, you say? Well, then don't get married while you're a slave. It wasn't a trick. Everybody knew the rules. So often people think, oh, that's so unfair. It's not really unfair. Just don't, get, don't fall in love. Don't, don't do that. Wait until you're not a slave and then figure it out. It's getting typical that believers follow their feelings over their faith. I fell in love with an unbeliever. It must be from God. I fell in love with someone, but I'm already married. It must be from God. How could it be so wrong when it feels so right? There was a Debbie Boone. Was it Debbie Boone saying that? You light up my life? Because she never said who the you was. You know, she was singing about the Lord, but... That's a terrible line. How could it be so wrong when it feels so right? That is like the battle cry of so many Christians today. Feels good to me. I fell in love. God wouldn't let me fall in love unless it was real. Here's something I want you to write down. It isn't blessed by God if you sin by doing it. That, that's just bedrock. We, we understand that, right? Shake your head, yes. It isn't blessed of God if you sin by doing it. I don't care what it feels like or how many logical arguments you have. Sin is still sin. And so uh, we read this and we think, oh, that's harsh. No, no, it's really not. It would be harsh if he came in with his wife and children and the master kept his wife and children. 
But he comes in and falls in love with some gal, well, that's none of his business. You need to keep that from happening. And so verse five, but if the servant plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out free. And so he has an option. Freedom of choice. And that's not typical of slavery as we know it, is it? A freedom of choice. There wasn't pressure from the master of the house, no coercion, of, uh, no threatening. No, the slave preferred to stay and serve in this household. It was based on love. And so verse 6, then his master shall bring him to the judges. He shall also bring him to the door or to the doorpost. And his master shall pierce his ear with an awl, and he will serve him forever. And so the slave must declare in a public legal ceremony that he was making this decision himself. He took this obligation freely without any mental reservation or purpose of evasion. This is what he wanted to do. He was then earmarked as a lifelong slave. I note in passing that piercings are biblical, at least ear piercings. And probably they wore an earring too. I'm not really going out on a limb there because if you've had your ear pierced, you know that if you don't wear something in it, it will close up. What good is it having your ear pierced to identify you as a permanent slave if the piercing closes up and nobody notices it? And so just some of this is just logic. So verse 7, and if a man sells his daughter to be a female slave, she shall not go out as the male slaves do. It's hard to pin everything down exactly, but it seems that a daughter might be sold to be a housekeeper or to do other uh, work, maybe out in the fields, that kind of thing. There's nothing perverse about this. This isn't sex trafficking. They're not selling their children into the sex trade. That doesn't mean it was easy. But remember, the father had fallen on hard times and needed help. Uh, This family was in trouble. Now, we have a foster care system, do we not? It isn't the ideal, but it can be very helpful when families fall on hard times and children are endangered or neglected or whatever, then we have foster care. We encourage adoption, do we not? It isn't the ideal, but it can preserve the sanctity of life. And so a lot of these things, though they're foreign to us, in a sense they're not different from the things that we struggle with. And uh, it was a, a beautiful provision, really. Verse 8, if she does not please her master who has betrothed her to himself, then he shall let her be redeemed. He shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people since he has dealt deceitfully with her. I wish all of this was more clear. It isn't. What we can say is that a betrothal took place. The master of the house intended to marry her, and then he suddenly decided not to. Seems like these Jewish men of this era were fickle. In Deuteronomy, there's that whole section about divorce where it says they were just divorcing their wife for any reason whatsoever. And a lot of these laws came in to protect the rights of these individuals. And so he decided not to marry her. In that case, it says he has dealt deceitfully with her. She had rights, and he had wronged her. She could not be sold as property, but she still must be cared for. In case you're not aware, Disneyland is changing an iconic scene in its Pirates of the Caribbean ride. The scene that once had a red-headed character named Red as part of a wench sale with a sign that reads, Auction, take a wench for a bride, that's been changed. Red will now be a pirate who's just pillaged the town's rum supply and has something to say about that. 
I love the ride, but all of it is problematic for children. I mean, not just the wench sale. You remember the song, right? Yo-ho, yo-ho, a pirate's life for me. We pillage and plunder. We rifle and loot. Drink up me arties, yo-ho. We kidnap and ravage and don't give a hoot. The song goes on to glorify filching and sacking, embezzling and hijacking, charring and flaming, igniting, burning cities and frightening. All good fun for your children. Daddy, what is pillaging? You're too young to know that. Why did I go on the ride? It's Disneyland. You should be happy. Anyway, verse 9. And if he has betrothed her to a son, he shall deal with her according to the custom of daughters. If he takes another wife, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, and her marriage rights. And if he does not do these three for her, then she shall go out free without paying any money. In the case of a female slave, she could not go out free in the seventh year if her master had taken her as a wife or a concubine and was willing to fulfill his responsibilities to her. If he was not willing, she had to be redeemed and could not be sold as a slave to Gentiles. If he wanted her as a wife for his son, then he had to treat her as he would any daughter-in-law. If the master took another wife, she was still, he was still responsible to provide for the slave girl and to give her full marriage rights. And so... None of this has any comparison, really, to the types of slavery that we normally think of. Multiple wives and concubines rightfully bother us. Tribal societies create certain unusual circumstances that seem to push the envelope. For example, in Israel, the family name must continue. There must be 12 tribes. And so that family name can't die out. No tribe could go extinct. It made for an unusual provision. If a brother died, you must produce children for your deceased brother by having sex with your sister-in-law. This should be enough for all of us to say we're not under the law anymore. But you see what I mean? It's, it's an odd situation that we would think, oh, yeah, but it was allowed, and in, in fact, not more, more than allowed, it was encouraged and demanded because this was a tribal agricultural society, and, and that's, that's the way things worked. And so when we read some of this, we get into a lot of apologetics about different things, and that's good, but sometimes we just realize these are guidelines applied, uh, applying the Ten Commandments to the situation as it actually was. And we don't live in a tribal society, and so some of these things are never going to happen. Uh, should we follow these judgments and restore biblical slavery? You'll find websites that encourage this, that we should get rid of our prison system and go back to this type of uh, restitution and restoration kind of a thing. I say no. These judgments were the application of the Ten Commandments in the foundational tribal society of Israel. We should make application of the Ten Commandments to our Western non-tribal society. We, uh, God recognizes differences in ethnicities and differences in societies. We don't all live the same way, but we should all apply these principles. The true wonder of these verses is the preservation of the sanctity of life. We can look at all of our laws, present and future, and ask, are we maintaining the sanctity of all human life? So rather than argue about whether we should apply these laws in particular, just step back and say, this law or that law or this proposed law, 
Is it based on the sanctity of all human life? Because if it's not, then it's not from God. It's not godly, and it's not what he would require of a government. And, and I think that's a pretty easy question to ask. And I think we'd find sweeping reform uh, of our legal system if we uh, applied that uh, principle. And so that's what we draw out of this. And then secondly, we're going to see the sanctity of human life in the, maintain, in the mandating, rather, of capital punishment. 19th century novelist Alphonse Carr said, if we want to abolish the death penalty, let our friends, the murderers, take the first step. And so that's, that's a great argument, isn't it? You want to abolish the death penalty, tell people not to murder other people, and that, that will do it. Then there will be no death penalty. I mean, you, you figured out how to get rid of the death penalty. Just ban murder. Another Alphonse, 20th century gangster Alphonse Capone said, you can get much farther with a kind word and a gun than you can with a kind word alone. As long as there's people like him, you're going to need the death penalty. Now, the Old Testament law prescribed capital punishment for an extensive list of crimes. Here are some of them. I've got all the references in the notes, but I'll just read the crimes. Murder, attacking or cursing a parent, disobedience to parents, kidnapping, failure to confine a dangerous animal resulting in death, witchcraft and sorcery, human sacrifice, sex with an animal, doing work on the Sabbath, incest, adultery, homosexuality, prostitution by a priest's daughter, blasphemy, false prophecy, perjury in capital cases, refusing to obey a decision of a judge or a priest, false claims of a woman's virginity at the time of marriage, and sex between a woman pledged to be married and a man other than her betrothed. And so there were a wide range of uh, infractions that called for capital punishment. We're going to see four specific cases in our verses, premeditated murder, physical violence against parents, kidnapping, and the verbal abuse of parents. Verse 12, he who strikes a man so that he dies shall surely be put to death. Now, since we've just seen regarding the treatment of slaves that God promotes the sanctity of all human life, we must conclude that his prescribing capital punishment also upholds the sanctity of all human life. I like what the good folks at Answers in Genesis have to say. They quote God's instruction to Noah after the flood, Genesis 9, 6, which says, whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed, for in the image of God he made man. And so because of the sanctity of all human life, uh, if there is the shedding of blood, then a life is required. And they apply it by saying this, though Genesis 6, uh, 9, 6 may seem inconsistent or contradictory to the sanctity of life, it in fact demonstrates the sacredness of human life. Scriptures view murder as such a contemptible crime against man and God that the only just penalty is the forfeiting of the murderer's life. Any other punishment degrades the life of the victim. Any other punishment risks additional murderous acts, even by those serving a lifetime prison sentence. Any other punishment reduces the heinousness of murder, thereby endangering society by lessening its stigma. In a sinful society, Genesis 9-6, though a dreadful command, is a blessing from God. It furnishes the ultimate protection for human life. And so, uh, you know, some people say, well, if you believe in the sanctity of life, then you must not believe in the death penalty. Oh, no, it's because I believe in the sanctity of life that I believe in the death penalty. 
because it's the only uh, possible punishment uh, for that crime. Now, whenever the subject of capital punishment comes up, we like to try to win the point by arguing that it's a deterrent to crime or something like that. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't do that or that those arguments are inconsequential. But the real issue is this. Has God prescribed it as a punishment? If he has, then that kind of settles it, really. It's pretty clear God prescribed it for Noah's descendants. It's pretty clear he demanded it in Israel. I don't see it rescinded in the New Testament. In fact, in a famously quoted verse from Romans 13, we are told that, and I quote, if you do wrong, be afraid, for rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath, to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. And so it's clear that God has established government and given them the power of the sword. What do you do with swords? You don't tickle people with them. You execute people with them. And so um, capital punishment, sanctity of life. Verse 13, however, if he did not lie in wait, but God delivered him into his hand, then I will appoint for you a place where he may flee. So a provision, a provision rather, was made for accidental, unintentional deaths, what we call manslaughter. God's altar was the safe place to flee to. Cities of refuge were later set up where the person responsible for the death could flee for safety of retribution until the judges could hear the case and determine whether it was murder or manslaughter. Then verse 14, if a man acts with premeditation against his neighbor to kill him by treachery, you shall take him from my altar that he may die. Take him from my altar meant there was no place of refuge. The murderer must be executed. There's no, no refuge, no city, no altar, no place where he was safe. Verse 15, and he who strikes his father or his mother shall surely be put to death. Note to self, take elder abuse seriously and, uh, because God does. Verse 16, he who kidnaps a man and sells him, or if he is found in his hand, he shall surely be put to death. Oh, my. Kidnapping to sell. Now, I don't want to get too deep into this, but that sounds a lot like the kind of slavery we're more familiar with. God said the folks involved in that kind of slave trade deserve the death penalty, both the ones who kidnap and the ones who purchase. That's a death penalty crime in the Old Testament. And so, you know, a lot of times people, because we don't really talk, well, quite honestly, who's teaching Exodus these days? And so a lot of times we don't cover these topics. And so people say, well, there was slavery in the Bible. Well, yeah, sort of. And they use it as a justification for slavery elsewhere in the free world or in the new world. Um, well, here's what slavery in the Bible says. If you kidnap somebody and sell him and then that man is found in your possession, you're all going to die. You all deserve to die. And so uh, slavery in the Bible is very different than we're familiar with. Verse 17 and he who curses his father or his mother shall surely be put to death. As a practical matter, the judges of Israel rarely, if ever, administered the death penalty in cases like this, yet the child was held accountable. Remember, these are guidelines for judges. The remaining verses follow no real order that I can tell, and I didn't want to force one on them. They simply speak to cases that were likely to occur. Let's read them and then comment on one important but misunderstood principle in them. So beginning in verse 18... If men contend with each other and one strikes the other with a stone or with his fist and he does not die but is confined to his bed, 
If he rises again and walks about outside with his staff, then he who struck him shall be acquitted. He shall only pay for the loss of his time and shall provide for him to be thoroughly healed. And if a man beats his male or female servant with a rod so that he dies under his hand, he shall surely be punished. Notwithstanding, if he remains alive a day or two, he shall not be punished, for he is his property. If men fight and hurt a woman with child so that she gives birth prematurely, yet no harm follows, he shall surely be punished accordingly as the woman's husband imposes on him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. But if any harm follows, you shall give life for life, eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. If a man strikes the eye of his male and female servant and destroys it, he shall let him go free for the sake of his eye. And if he knocks out the tooth of his male or female servant, he shall let him go free for the sake of his tooth. And so a lot of kind of strange things to our ears, but we can zero in on this life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. That'd make a great t-shirt. Actually, it wouldn't, but what about that? Well, first of all, it wasn't meant literally. How do we know that? Because in verse 26, a man destroys the eye of another man, but the prescribed punishment isn't to take his eye. Likewise, in verse 27, regarding the knocking out of a tooth. And so right after he says an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, he gives cases where you don't do that. So this law of an eye for an eye is mentioned twice more in the Old Testament. Each time the phrase is used in the context of a case being judged before a civil authority such as a judge. An eye for an eye was intended to be a guiding principle for lawgivers and judges. Never intended to be uh, justify vigilantism or settling grievances personally. It seems to mean that the punishment must fit the crime. You should not be overly severe. You should not be overly lenient. And so that's what it means. So eye for an eye. It doesn't mean you pluck out somebody's eye if they pluck out your eye. It means that you have to have the punishment fit the crime. You don't want to, if, for example, somebody plucked out your eye, you wouldn't pluck out two of their eyes. That would be an over punishment. But you wouldn't just put a patch on their eye either. That would be a lesser punishment. And so the punishment must fit the crime. Uh, and that's a good thing. We like that. We don't want to be overly punished if we're criminals. And uh, we don't want criminal, uh, you know, the opposite is true too. We don't want to be too lenient on those who have done us wrong. And so capital punishment upholds the sanctity of all human life. One of the commentators wrote and said, this grand principle of the sanctity of human life, if acted on all around, would discourage all violence and inaugurate the era of universal peace and goodwill towards man. Now that's probably an over-exaggeration. Or, or at least it just doesn't recognize the, the wickedness of the heart. But that's the idea behind these verses. If we really held to the sacredness, the sanctity of all human life, what a wonderful world this would be. Now, it wouldn't be right to end this study without returning to the slave earmarked by choice for lifelong service to his master. Throughout the New Testament, the earmarked slave is applied metaphorically to someone absolutely devoted to Jesus. Paul, Timothy, James, Peter, and Jude are all described as bondservants of Jesus Christ. And by bondservant, they mean voluntary, lifelong slavery, uh, similar to what a, a, a slave would do in the Old Testament who wanted to remain in his master's house. And so you might be a domestic engineer, you might be a sanitation engineer, 
But are you first and foremost a bondservant? Are you earmarked for Jesus? My master, lead me to the door. Place this now willing ear once more. Thy bonds are freedom. Let me stay with thee to toil, endure, obey. Let's pray.